Welcome to Discography and the second in an ongoing Thursday-based series of episodes that we're calling after the 1980s television series that adopt very the same premise. The very, <laughs> very special <laughs> episode. How come it took me a year to get to that point? I, I, I jumped in pretty yeah, you surely. Me. I appreciate that. We're not, we're, not great, my back. we're not great at saying things at the same time. The only problem with having a podcast uh, where you're not good at saying things is the fact that you're not good at saying Well, things. we're good at saying things, just not simultaneous <laughs> things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's good because that's not the proper. Way Luckily, to talk. that's mostly not what podcasting is. Yeah, uh, in our be, case, be very in, precious. We'd be in little. big trouble if it was like synchronized podcasting. <laughs> yes. You had to say the same thing at the same time. Like that time. synchronized uh, dancing, uh, swimming sketch that Martin Short did. It, would be, it would be a lot like that. Uh, so the, our first very special episode was an interview with Kevin Whelan of the Runs and Ian Station. That's right. Kind that enough was awesome. to come and chat with us. And then um, you know we've got a few more of these. We've we've did this one a little while ago, and there was so, so it, much in it, yeah, that um, it took us a while to get through it and get it all. Uh, also, back at the inception of the show, uh, when we started, Joe, it was I think it was it was early November, uh, I believe November first mm -hmm. when we debuted. So uh, when we taped the interview with John, uh, it was it went on for hours. I mean. And very, very little of it was cutting room floor material. So what we decided to do was, you know what? Because we were always planning on having multiple strands of content, uh, including, you know, a massive run of stuff on Patreon. Uh, we tons of different show ideas that we're, you know, currently assembling. And so we were going to hold off uh, because there were plenty of uh, applications for John stuff. But uh, finally, we were like, we got to put something out. Yeah, so this is a portion of that interview uh, where he's mostly talking about uh, music. This is mostly, right. th you know, his experience, like uh, you know, shows he's seen and his relationship with music over the years. Obviously, as the director of, you know, movies like uh, like the Blues Brothers uh, and Animal House, which had an incredible soundtrack, he had a lot to say about how film and music interacted. If you've never heard him uh, talk, he's quite a raconteur. He is. He's the raconteurist of raconteurs. The <laughs> ultimate, the greatest, uh, a beautiful person, a dear friend. and A super uh, fun the, interview that we will hope you will enjoy. This is the first part of that interview. This is Discography presents a very special episode, John Landis, A Conversation, Part 1. Enjoy. Our guest today is known for his groundbreaking work in multiple genres, including comedy, horror, and long-form video. He's directed about 25 films, including a 10-year streak that almost nobody in film history has equaled, in my objective opinion. His work includes Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Michael Jackson's thriller video, Coming to America, and Into the Night. I love him, as I'm quite sure you will too. Ladies and gentlemen, John Levitsky, a.k.a. John Landis. You now you have to show? change that. What? To, I was never John Levitsky. What the hell's that then? I thought that was your goddamn name when you were born. No. What's John Levitsky? There is no John Levitsky. Tell me about the, the what is John Levitsky? Levitsky was my great, great grandparents' name. Okay. All right. But uh, my grandfather changed it. No, okay. my great grandfather changed it so that my grandfather could get into law school. You needed a Goyish name to get into. There was a Jew quota at the time. <laughs> no. So, the, 
That's you the were, truth. You were actually, okay, there's a bunch of stuff that a lot of people who know your work or know you uh, know very well about you, which is that you are a Chicago guy, born in Chicago, but at four months old, you went out to, uh, to L.A. Uh, with your dad, Marshall, your mom, Shirley. Is that correct? Or was your dad? I was actually, I know I was not, I was under one. Okay. But I don't know. I couldn't vouch for four months. <laughs> okay, now your mom, you made her a, 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 even more mythological than you because a lot of people don't know that joke in Airplane, which is, le- which is truly a legendary joke, is, was sort of a gift to your mom, was it not? You want to tell us about that? It's not a gift to my mom. It's just a, a, my mother's name was Shirley, and we always would say, you know, that whole Shirley gag airplane is something we did with my mother forever. In fact, years later when she broke her hip and she walked with a walker, we would say, here she comes, slowly but surely. <laughs> <laughs> so just to, just to rewind for a second before we delve into uh, every single detail about your existence thus far, uh, you and I... I should clarify, I didn't make Airplane. <laughs> that was made by Jerry, David, and Jim. Right, I, but uh, it, is, it is one of the most famous jokes from the movie, and most quoted, uh, very possibly. So, full disclosure, you and I know each other. We met and uh, actually started talking in 2003. I reached out to you because uh, the film I was making at the time, Zombie Honeymoon, I had a feeling that you would respond to it. And you were... I got to say, you were a true mensch. I mean, you didn't have to take, uh, I faxed a letter to your manager. You didn't have to call me. You called me the next day. To my lawyer. I've never, to your lawyer. I've whatever, never had a manager. Whomever it was. This is why they called me mythological. <laughs> so you, you helped me along the way. You got me my first distribution offer through, uh, through uh, Blue Underground and... Uh, and Bill Lustig. Then you and I actually went to Italy uh, to the Torino Film Festival. Uh, and, you know, you really helped me out along the way. Plus, you know, just having you as a mentor figure along the way, uh, when the chips were down and filmmaking is a, certainly an up and down process, uh, it really helped me through. Thank you. And moving right along now, you're now in LA, okay? Uh, you see Seventh Voyage of, Sin- of Sinbad. This is the big inspiration for you. Uh, you decide to become a filmmaker. The first step along the way is becoming a, a mailboy at 20th Century Fox. Is that correct? I just wanted to be near production, to, to get anywhere near making movies. And the only way, I, the only job I could get was a mailboy at, at Fox. So did you see this as your way in, or you just kind of wanted to be uh, on the periphery, so to speak? There's no way in. I mean, what what's interesting is when people talk about my career, it always sounds like the military. You always hear, he worked his way up from the... There's no working your way up. No, you zigzagged all no, over no, the No, 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 but there is... It's not a... It's, it doesn't work like that. I mean, how do you become a director? Well, somehow there's the money for you to direct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's not an easy, there's no steps. Like if you wanted to be a plumber, you know that you go and you learn. You learn a trade. A trade, Mm -hmm. right. If you want to be a doctor, you learn the trade. If you want to be a filmmaker, there is no right or wrong way to learn the skills or the craft. I learned by fucking up so bad. 
Well, that's how people learn. That's a way. Yeah, that's uh, how like people really learn bad. everything. No, I mean, I, I, you know, like you, I, I butted heads with schools. So I was suspended from college and, and just went and made a feature called Jesus 2, partially financed with bar mitzvah money, and um, also partially financed by $40,000 on credit cards. And we had to shut down production in the middle. I know what not to do. You know what I mean? Um, but so during this time... I just wanted to be near actual production, to learn everything I could. And over the years, I've... There's, you can't do what I did now, really, because there was production. I went to Europe on a movie, and I was able to. There was what was called the spaghetti boom in Spain at Be- the time. Before we get there, well, yeah. no, I was just saying I was able to get on all kinds of movies: American, British, French, Spanish, German, Italian. I did was you, on. Did you? And do, yeah, I have done every job on a film except hair. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, sort of learned the craft. That's incredible to me because you were very well coiffed. Um, so kind of the same kind of deal uh, working in music. You know, yeah. it's like you, if you want to get into making records, hang out around recording studios, hang out around people who make records. You know, you, you pick things up along the way. You know? well, was that the inspiration to drop out of high school? Was I know what I want to do. It's just time to start doing it. And looking back, uh, are you... Still, do you still feel the same way about that decision? Well, I'm I'm the classic bad example because I one I'm sure that the diagnosis didn't exist then, but I'm sure I was ADHD. Um, you know, I used to get bizarre grades. I would get A's in history and A's in English and F's in math. I was dread. I still am dreadful at anything that involves math. Um, so one of the things about music that fascinates me is when I worked with uh, film composers is when I really realized, wait a minute, music is math. Yeah, they're very closely related. Uh, yeah, we're like, holy shit. Um, no wonder I'm not a musician. <laughs> but interestingly enough, I've been told by a lot of amazing people that I, I'm you know, privileged to have worked with Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, um, Peter Bernstein, I'm trying to think. I mean, Nile Rodgers, so many great composers. And they've all told me that I have perfect rhythm. And I think, and I don't know what that is, but what's interesting about that is it does help because even rhythm is math. Well, rhythm is, an, I feel like it's, that's an innate quality. People are either inherently funky or not. There's nothing you can, don't, don't nothing you can really do about it if you don't have good rhythm. Well, it helps you with film music. And editing. Mm-hmm. Editing is math. Well, I mean, if you, can't, if you can't strip away what you're seeing and just feel the organic underlying rhythm of the scene, then you're... Yes, but I wouldn't say editing is math. You're 14 years old, okay? And you oh, go to this show called The Tammy Show. Oh, okay. All right, so there's a, a famous movie, The Tammy Show... Uh, and you're in the goddamn movie, so... Well, no, 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 I, I'm in the audience. You you're in the movie, aren't you not? Uh, you can see me if yeah. you know where to look, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just one other little screaming kid. But the thing about the Tammy show was my... I went to Emerson Junior High, which was L.A. public school, um, right behind the Mormon Temple. Is Emerson still there? And because of the area it was in, which includes Bel Air and Westwood. Um, 
a lot of industry kids were there. It was a very strange school because we had uh, black kids bust in from Watts. We had mostly white. It was about a it's about forty five percent white, about twenty percent black, and twenty percent Hispanic. It was actually a good mix of kids. Who were, who were you most excited to see? I'm well, guessing no, it was no, James I Brown. didn't wasn't excited to see them then. But like in my class was David Cassidy, you know, and uh, Bonnie Raitt was the great ahead of me. My sisters, who also went to Emerson, they went on to uni, the high school. I did not, but th- my sister was in the same class with um, Natalie Cole and Liza Minnelli. Um, and I remember I never met her or saw her, but. My mother being so excited when Judy Garland came to pick up Liza and spent the night. They were talking about she was probably 14, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, my mother was like, Judy Garland's outside. Um, so when, but when you went to the show, do you remember? Who- well, I was going to say, that there were all these really talented kids in my school. Um, somebody in Emerson, I don't. I've forgotten who, but their dad was involved in producing the Tammy show, which was Teenage America Music International. And it was shot. They came up with some silly word for it, but it was shot. To, uh, yeah, it was like uh, something vision. Something, yes, vision. Uh, some, something like uh, but le- it was, electro vision. Or yeah, like it that. was shot to be projected in theaters. And something went wrong, and they ended up having 16-millimeter cameras, too, to make, you know, kinescopes that they had, too. But it, all I know is they, they did shoot the show, and it's directed by the same guy who directed the famous Elvis special. Mm-hmm. So he's a, you He's might, a nice guy. But anyway... Do you remember the show itself? Uh, very well. What I who remember, do you remember most? What I remember most was James Brown. Right. But also what I remember was the idea... That you had, you know, Marvin Gaye, Chuck Berry, the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, Diana Ross, uh, and the Supremes. You had and the Stones, legendary Rolling Stones, and shakily. Well, I wait, wait. I'm trying James to think. Well, I'm trying to think. It was an amazing. Jan and Dean, we're on there. Jan and Dean were the host. You had Leslie uh, Gore. Well, that was the point of all those acts. The biggest star. Was Leslie Gore? Yeah, she was really? hot. She was hot right at that she time. She was that the time, really? biggest yeah. star. And in fact, if you look at the Tammy Show, you see her singing and all those people behind her dancing. You know, and she was the number one star, which was kind of amazing. I wonder if our friend Don Randy was in the band on that show because the, the band is um, all Wrecking Crew. It's Hal the Wrecking Blaine. Crew. It's Hal Blaine and, and you know Tommy who Tedesco. the go, one of the Go Go Girls is Tony Basil, and uh, one of the Go Go Girls is Terry Gar. Oh, nice, um, nice. See, but you gotta I was, love this town. It's I was so younger good. than them, but the the show was very exciting. They did it twice, hmm. so one audience they cut between shows, but one audience is like the seventh and eighth grade, and one audience is like the eighth and ninth grade. <laughs> I hadn't seen it in a while, and I watched some of it last night. And, it's um, the best footage. Of James Brown performing, yeah, live. that's amazing. It's, it's, it's the, great, Chuck, yeah. the Chuck Berry footage is pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty like the Stone raw, stuff like, is pretty limp. I mean, it's that actually, sounded pretty good to me. Well, well you can tell that of, story. I mean, after watching James Brown, that's it's just the funny. story. Yeah. Mick Gar- yeah, Mick yeah. Jagger, Mick Gar- Mick Jagger tells a funny story about it, but he insisted that they be the ending act, the closing act, and James Brown said, "Excuse me, uh, <laughs> I'm the closing act." So they had a 
this the director I can't think of his name I'm embarrassed but he called them all together and he said look you put me in this weird position you're both demanding to be the closing act and James famously looked at Mick Jagger and said oh this is uh, okay let him be the closing <laughs> act and then James comes out and just blows Murders the it. roof off yeah. yeah. and then after James Brown the Rolling Stones now they were big stars because of Ed Sullivan we knew who they were but it was like hoodie skinny white boys. <laughs> it was like. I'm curious, John. You actually saw the Beatles at an early show. Is that correct? I don't know if it was early, not in their career, but. It was actually kind of late for them. It yeah, like yeah actually, another... it was toward the end of their. Yeah. yeah. But but did the Beatles were you just like everyone else? Were you uh, did you see that Ed Sullivan show? Did they impact you at all? Of or? course. Of course, the Beatles were. I had my mother made me puppets of the Beatles. I used to do puppet shows, and I had these paper mache heads and you know cloth bodies and black yarn, so that when they went, Ooh, you could shake their heads back and forth in their hair. But can you hear anything at that show? You actually so, hear? Can you actually hear them play? Interestingly enough, no. And what was amazing? Who did you go with? With your mom? No, no. Um, I went to school with Peter Bernstein, and Peter's father is was Elmer Bernstein, the great Hollywood composer. And Elmer took us, meaning his son Peter and his other son Greg, and me. And I'm not sure if Andy Gold was with us or not, but I've forgotten. But I do know Andy Gold, of course. uh, Linda Ronstadt's. side person during all the greatest years uh, in the 70s and thank you for being a friend yeah, Andrew had his boy. own hits Andrew was a pretty talented guy you and you came up with him so he I came, didn't come up with him I went to ninth and 10th grade well yeah. I went to okay. ninth and ninth grade with him I should <laughs> say, I guess so you're at the show so what, took what do you a, remember we had, we had uh, or Elmer had box seats and what I remember at the Hollywood Bowl, it's gone now, but there used to be a reflecting pond in front at the foot of the stage. It was a fairly large reflecting pond. It was quite beautiful when there was ballet or orchestra because it would have a mirror image. But they took that out 30 years ago, 20 But it was there then, so it took up a lot of boxes. <laughs> you know, and it was space. So we were right on the other side of the reflect. We had very good seats, the box seats, and... We brought food. I remember what I remember the most about that concert was the screaming. Yeah, that's what everybody says. Yeah, just screaming. You hear it's, maybe like a, bar, a first couple bars, and then the, they the, once people it, recognize what the song was. That they the song ran. Was. They ran out on stage. They said a few words like "hello," <laughs> and from then on, it was screaming. And you know, people don't realize that there weren't stadium speakers then. You know, when they played. Venues, they were halls, you know, they or theaters, proper theaters. But when you're playing the Hollywood Bowl, that there were for rock and roll, there were no stadium speakers. Which, yeah, there were no stacks like they have now. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, I saw many shows where if you were too far away, you couldn't hear it at all. Right. But in terms of the Beatles, the hysteria 
I was 15. I remember that. I mean, it was the summer I turned 15, I guess. But the, the screaming was yeah. so intense. Well, they, they invented a special amp for the Beatles, the Super Beetle Vox amp, which I think was 50 watts. That was like the really? loudest amp. Like you're supposed to play a 10,000 seat theater and they're supposed to hear your 50 watt amp. So <laughs> so just to, just to have context, a street busker would be playing how many watts out of their amp? 10 watts. Okay, so five times louder than a street busker. I mean, a 50 watt amp's pretty loud, but still, yeah. you know. To, to it, was, I, it, it was very exciting. And that show later came out as the capital LP from 77. That yeah, very show, right? That's what they say. I mean, we always thought so. And we were excited because then you could hear them. They could still play pretty good, despite there could have been there. There was no way they would could have been able to hear themselves. I've heard the show from Candlestick Park. There's obviously a very loud, the very last one in, in August of '66. Obviously, very loud screaming. But then the music underneath, especially Nowhere Man, like I, I just really. Well, but recall, you're listening to. You were there, or no? You, God no! You I heard a recording. Six. Yeah, yeah. Well, recordings. You got to remember the vocals are up front. It's you know it's very different. But than they're hearing not hearing it. anything. Yeah, oh, so the fact, the fact that it's actually cohering under all this blanket of madness is insane. Well, they played. How many gigs did they play? Right. Yeah, that's the thing nobody does anymore. You know, they had all those years playing. You know, four sets of nights until four in the morning for yeah, years. Dr- drunk on Jack and and hopped up on meth. Right? It's just a lot of performing, regardless of drugs. It's it's yeah. just that when you, it's why you know the secret of Hollywood. People don't really understand this, but why are American movies from the twenties to the seventies so fucking remarkable? And one of the main reasons is vaudeville. Mm. Is you had. You had Chautauqua, you had Tent, you had Showboat, but then you had Vaudeville and legit theater. But Vaudeville, how many thousand theaters were in the country and how many people were, you know, W.C. Fields was performing in Vaudeville for 30 years, 40 years before he made a movie. And when you see that the talent and just the skills of the performers that the movie studios had to pull from, and you look at movies like, I mean, if it's not Broadway, it's vaudeville. And if you look at movies like The Wizard of Oz, which I think is one of the great films, period, the entire cast, even Judy Garland, the Gum Sisters, they're all vaudevillians, right. which means they've all been on stage for years. And it's why they're so damn good. It's this talent pool that's so deep. I think it's the same thing with music. Like I, you know, I you see a clip of someone like Joni Mitchell or someone playing, and you you can't imagine walking into a coffee house and seeing somebody do that now. It would, it would no. your brain would explode. I <laughs> saw. It yeah. you know. I know one. I saw Bob Dylan with just him and a guitar at the Rose Cafe on Rose in the Boardwalk in Venice in the '60s. Really? Wow. I forgot. Yeah, I saw wow. that, and it was just him performing. But so just to bring it back to the Beatles, I'm curious, did, because I, you and I have never spoken about this. Did they have any kind of, I know right around that time, and if you want, we can cut this out. Right around that time, you dropped out of high school, correct? Was it that it, what, year? That year. So <laughs> no, did, no, I dropped out. I lied. I dropped out in 66. 66. Mm, so yeah. we'll forget about that as far as how that relates to the Beatles. But I'm curious, in what way, if any, did they impact you creatively? Oh, the, well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, you know, when people talk about their influences, they're really not candid unless they say everybody, 
everything, good and bad. And then there's some individuals who maybe had a, a bigger impact on you. I mean, what's fascinating about the Beatles that I was un, really unaware of at the time was how they evolved. I mean, you know, I mean, just recently, Paul McCartney kind of snarkily referred to the Rolling Stones as a uh, rhythm and blues cover band. <laughs> but the evolution of the Beatles is amazing. Yeah. It's, you know, from covering Chuck Berry tunes and stuff to, to what they evolved into is amazing. And the, as a group and as a phenomenon, culturally, there's hardly been anything with that kind of impact. It's like Stravinsky's Firebird. You know, it was literally riots. And their their impact on international culture was a... You know, and I was perfect. I was 15. I was right there mm. for it. I mean, I saw them when I was... When, when were they on Ed Sullivan the first? 64. 63. 63. So I was yeah, 13. Yeah, no, Ed Sullivan was 64. Whatever. 64. Okay. Yeah, February 64, yeah. yeah. You guys are insane. Anyway, the, <laughs> the thing is, you're like, you Welcome know what? To it's like baseball fans. <laughs> I'm one of those too. Are you? Because you know what? You know what it is? It's just statistics. I mean, it's all numbers. Anyway, the uh, am I wrong? No, you're correct. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, the exciting story I'm telling you is the Beatles. We, I, and I think it was the influence of Peter Bernstein and Andy Gold, who were both musicians and players um, and composers <laughs> and singers, you know, but they had a much more sophisticated understanding of the Beatles than I did. I mean, because Andy, for instance, I remember when Revolver came out, listening to the record at school and Andy breaking it down, how amazingly new or different or this or listen to this and what they're doing here. I also remember Andy doing that with the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. When I thought of the, the Beach Boys, this before Good yeah. Vibrations. And you can hear in Andy's stuff obvious the obvious influence oh, of sure. both bands. Well, yeah. I thought the Beach Boys were, you know, they're my favorite. A beach band. You know, I mm. I saw them many times playing on the beach. I have a Beach Boys tattoo, which you Oh, I don't want to see it. Thank you. <laughs> it's some on things, my genitals. Some, it's on your genitals? Then <laughs> I would like kidding. to see it. <laughs> um, but, okay, so here's the amazing thing to me, okay? You go to the show. It's overwhelming. You can barely hear them. It's you a could, cultural phenomenon. And then it was phenomenon. a nightmare getting to your car and out of there. It was Still just is. an experience. Yeah. I've, the only time I've seen that kind of hysteria was um, when Michael Jackson took Deborah and baby Rachel, my daughter, who's now in her late 30s, um, he took us to Disney World right after we made Thriller. And I had an experience like that where people were, it was like being with Michael at that moment. He just went to regular Disney World, just Michael Jackson. Well, yes, but it wasn't, he, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Disney World they built it. It's all swamp. Right. And I'm from they, Florida. So I, I know they it built well. the whole thing. It's the entire place is built underneath it. Yeah, it's it's like below sea level kind of. Yeah. yeah it's like, all concrete and these huge tunnels and passageways and it's very science fiction looking and they drive around in golf carts. And so you can be anywhere in any of the parks from underground you know, that's why you don't see, you know, it's very kind of brilliant and all the trash and everything goes, it's right. underground. 
It isn't really. It's actually built up. You know, the tallest mountain. So he's doing the subterranean. Uh, yeah, he's, so he's that's how Michael got around. around Disney World. Is, you know, you, he's not just like standing in line were for you, Pirates were of you, the Caribbean. Did you gain and, entry into those underground tunnels? Oh, sure. <laughs> I'll tell you I'll tell you the story because it's an absolutely true story. I have a photograph. But it's um, the only time in my life. So I, can't, I don't know how the Beatles. I don't know how these rock groups or Elvis or Sinatra survive this stuff. I mean, obviously, it tends to make people insane. Yeah, not not well. Is how they yeah, say. Well, <laughs> it, it's a crazy-making thing. But I was with Mike, and uh, Disney wanted us to get a, their, their photographer to take a picture of us, Michael and me, and Mickey Mouse. This is when Thriller was on TV. The video was mm-hmm. a big deal. So <laughs> we go you know, underground, and we're taken in a golf cart, and we came up. Where the hell was it? It was in Fantasyland. So we're like, the castle's back there. And it was like a lawn. And around the lawn, not like the size of this room, not that big, (laughs) around the lawn was a little uh, rope with stanchions, like in a bank. You know those lines? You know, that was invented at Disneyland, (laughs) that (laughs) way of... Anyway, that was it. That was our protection. There was a, a park security guy and Michael's security guy who was named Bill Bray, who was an old guy who was an ex-LAPD cop, and he he was security. Right. I don't know how much security. You were pretty fucking recognizable at that time, too. I mean, were people coming well, up to no, you no, as no. well? But you're standing Obviously next you're to Michael Jackson. It was yeah, Michael yeah. Jackson. <laughs> Did he suck the wait celebrity Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, that's like the Apostle Paul. It's like, hey, I'm here, too. <laughs> but it, No, but this, uh, the story is we appear. There's a photographer waiting. He had one of those old flash cameras, like King Kong, like in the movies, you know. And <laughs> with we that get, noise, we get we stand up, and there are people in the park. It's open, and some people you hear, "Hey, look!" Scream in the distance, scream, and within two minutes, there were thousands of people around <laughs> us. And when I say thousands, I mean as far as you could see. I mean, it, you. I mean, it was like I thought. Uh oh, and they were <laughs> they were hysterical, hysterical. I mean, people would see Mike, and it was like seeing Jesus. There's thousands of people going crazy with this little stanchions between us. The security guy, you know, the Disney security guy, is standing in his suit, you know, with his walkie-talkie, and you see him going, "Help! Help! Send help!" You know, and Mickey is a guy in a costume. So there's Mickey Mouse and Michael and me, and the man snapping pictures, snapping pictures, snapping pictures, and the photographer said, I'm a little concerned about crowd control. And just then, magically, and I couldn't tell you where it came from, a black Cadillac limousine appears. <laughs> the security guy grabs Michael throws him in the back, grabs Mickey, throws him in the back, and I'm thinking, oh, I see my input. Grabs me, throws me in the back. The photographer jumps in the front. There's a driver. They slam the doors, and the, the, the chains break, and it was like like a dam bursting. They came, the crowd, like surf, came crashing down upon the car, like, like that. Faces pushed to get everyone hysterical. 
Mickey is like, holy shit. Know, you know, I mean, we're just. <laughs> the poor guy with the giant Mickey head. Oh, we yeah. are terrified. <laughs> I was, when I say we, Mickey, the photographer, me, and the driver. Michael, calm, cool as a cucumber, saying, hi, hi, hello, Yeah, just another, another day. And people are mushed against the glass, and I think people are going to get hurt. And the guy starts the car and inches forward slowly. It took us like 20 minutes to just get away from the crowd. And it, then more security and more security came. It was terrifying. I can't fucking believe they saved Mickey before they saved you. That's, I can't even get past that Well, point he was a corporate asset. <laughs> <laughs> the one time in my life that I was speechless, that I was just gobsmacked, because it was so unexpected and so out of context was we were shooting Thriller in Vernon um, by a big meatpacking plant. There was an alley, and at that time it was kind of a very dangerous neighborhood. It was gang. It, it, it ain't great now. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It was gang related. And we had, we had a heavy police presence, but to shoot that. But um, like three in the morning or something. Michael Jackson had an assistant, a uh, young girl, and she came to me and said, John, Mike, we were shooting a graveyard thing in a meatpacking plant, you know, by the railroad tracks, and uh, Michael would like to see you, please. And I said, well, tell him I'll be out in 10 or 15 minutes. I have to finish this. I think he wants to see you now. I said, apologize. Tell him I'll be out in 15 or, you know, minutes. So 10 minutes later, I go up to this Winnebago that's parked by the railroad track knock on the door and you know how you when you enter a Winnebago you open the door and you step up into mm -hmm. it so I knock knock come in I open the door step up and like as I sort of turn like right there Michael says John do you know Mrs. Onassis <laughs> <laughs> and it's like Jackie Kennedy like right there and it was so like, huh? It, I was just dumbstruck. I don't know. It was that was the one time I just. You know. You know what's interesting about you is that you kind of excuse yourself from being a a, a sort of uh, you know somebody who's had a profound effect on music. You kind of like move away from that a little bit. But the funny thing is, you're like a stone skipping over a pond because you hit all these. You got the Tammy show, then you're at Monterey Pop. Oh, that no, I was extremely fortunate to be at Monterey. What's Pop. the story with Monterey Pop? Because you are the farthest fucking thing from a hippie I've ever met. I beg your pardon. No, my I I was not a hippie, but I was hippie-ish. I had long hair. Was it your idea or a girl's idea to was go? It, no, I went with a boy. I went with a guy. Um, Did you paint your face? No. Um, what did you wear accoutrement-wise? What I in? always wear, I wore jeans and a blazer. Shirt, a know? blazer? No, but I wasn't. I wasn't. A, I wasn't a full. I wasn't a, a real hippie. But most of the people there were not real hippies. The one hippie, con I mean, real hippie thing I went to that was totally hippie was seeing the mamas and the papas at the Hollywood Bowl, and. Go and that was the summer of love. That was sixty-seven. I remember that was August eighteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. That was well, the day you saw. I took a girl named Kathy Zoitlin, and Zoitlin. It sounds like no, a Jerry she, Lewis thing. She was. <laughs> anyway, I took this girl, and it was memorable for for a bunch of reasons. One, because the stench 
of marijuana, the wall of marijuana. Like you got within a mile of the Hollywood Bowl, you were stoned, you know. And we we go, and the entire every seat in the Hollywood Bowl, Mama Cass had paid for a baby orchid to be on it. And everyone was blowing bubbles and, you know, incense and Hare Krishna and all this stuff. And the opening act, talk about hippies, the opening act was Scott McKenzie singing, if you're going to San Francisco. Um, And then came a guy that no one, that had to be before Monterey Pop because I... It was after. It was two months after. But the Monterey Pop movie had not come out yet. That's okay, really because Jimi Hendrix came on and nobody knew who he was. And he started to play really loud um, the co- opening chords of Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. And he's playing that. And the audience just went, boo. <laughs> well, first of all, they're all stoned. Second of all, is what the fuck? They're going, what is this? And they did. They just booed. And he played most of the song. And then he took his guitar off and just threw it high in the air and walked off. And it smashed on the stage and made noise. And I remember very well the next day in the L.A. Times was a review of the concert. And it said, Mr. Hendricks, who was not received favorably, you know, threw his guitar in the air and walked off stage. I'm told normally he sets it on fire. (laughs) And I remember reading that going, what? See, that's why I'm interested, because I saw him at Monterey Right, I was going to ask if you had yeah. seen him at I Monterey I did, Pop, yeah. so in my head, I did, I have, I'm confused. And because- oddly, you had seen Mamas and Papas at Monterey Pop, so that was the summer of your obsession with the Mamas and no, the Papas. No, I, I don't know, but they, they were great. The Mamas and the Papas come on, and Mama Cass started by saying, you people, and she scolded the audience. She said, this man's a genius, and you're going to regret this. And she was really stern. She was like wagging her finger. Mm, she was right. And she, of course yeah, she was right. right, yeah. But the Monterey Pop CD, the film, uh, I think it's Pennebaker. Pen-a-baker. I forgot. It's Pennebaker. Pennebaker. He did a wonderful thing. He took the Jimi Hendrix set, but especially the Otis Redding set, and they're separate, their whole acts. And the Otis Redding, that for me was life change. I never, he was, I've seen Sinatra, I work with Michael Jackson, I work with David Bowie, I've worked with everybody, and I've, I've seen a lot of great performers. Oh, that was one of the great shows I've ever seen, period. Okay, so that was part one of our interview with John Landis. We've got a lot more. Man, of that. was that a fuckload of fun, Jesus! <laughs> yeah, there, there's a ton more of that. That was that's, that's the tip of the iceberg of yeah. our John Landis yeah. interview. And, and and very very precious little of it's actually going to wind up being just excised uh, completely without being utilized. But you know, one of the things that we definitely plan on doing is uh, using you know you know we basically cover just about every movie in his entire career. And even if cursorily you were uh, aware of the extent of his filmography, that would be an absolutely uh, bemusing idea that we would tackle everything. Yeah, Dave could do this show with movies too, no problem. Yeah. I, I would not be qualified to do that such a show, but uh, yeah, Dave, that, Dave that could. would be great. Uh, it's kind of like a mo- filmmaker guy, movie or I don't know. Yeah, so we don't really yeah. have a. It's not really on format, but it's wonderful. Uh, John is an incredible interview, 
And because uh, he and I are friends for 20 years, uh, it, it, there's a different character to the interview yeah. itself. And he's going to be making another appearance on the main discography show. That's right. Talking about a particular artist. That's right. So we he'll can't be back tell for you that who it too. is, but it does rhyme with Small McFartney. <laughs> all right so thank you so much for joining us on a very special episode thursday we'll see you back uh on monday for the conclusion of bob forrest and the band or if you're just listening out of order just soak up the entirety of the content like a piece of bread in a gravy bowl these are easily bingeable you've got like a 30 something hour binge or something now that's right that's right you're you're welcome Please support us in every single way possible. Press pause on your life and do so. Thank you so much S- for joining us. Send us money directly. Yeah. Just send us, just, just find <laughs> us right. and Venmo us. Yeah, cash up. Cash, just cash everything out. Send it all to us, Jim Jones style. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Discography. Discography.